Hello and welcome to a new podcast from the London Library, in which interesting people tell us about the books that have shaped their lives. I'm Philip Marshall, Director of the London Library, and today's guest is Asan Akbar. Asan's a man of many talents, a wearer of many hats, in fact, co-founder of the Dhaka Literary Festival, writer of poetry and a businessman. Asan, welcome. Thank you, Philip. Asan, you've given us a fascinating list of books to look at, and I'm really excited to be talking to you about those today. Um, some of our listeners may not know very much about you. Um, you were born in London mm-hmm. and brought up in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Did your love of books start when you were in Bangladesh as a child? Interestingly, it didn't. And in fact, when I was a child, my mother, who was a big book lover, uh, would, like many mothers do, uh, would try to encourage me to read. And I think that acted against uh, the whole idea. And I would push it away thinking books are something you read when you are very old. And maybe in my retirement, I would read lots of books if I if I lived that long. And because I'm young, I should be out. And I was very fond of cricket and football. So I was always outside playing games. And I also started to play in a band, horribly bad. <laughs> I started playing the guitar. So I was thinking, this, this, is, this is my life. I should be in music. I should be in sports. And books are something that are good. I never thought of them as uh, something useless, but I thought I'll, I'll put them away for in my latter life. Um, and then I think it was when I moved to England, when I moved back to England rather, because my parents were here in the 70s. I was born. They moved back when I was very young. Uh, and then I grew up there in Dhaka in Bangladesh. And then when I moved back to do my A-levels, um, I think that's when the love affair started and it's been going on since... Wonderful. Well, you can certainly see that in the things that you've done with your life since then. The first book you've selected, wonderful book, Hanif Qureshi, Buddha of Suburbia. Tell us why you selected that book. So this fits in very nicely with the story we were uh, just um, exploring. So I moved to England when I was 16 and a half. I went to a school which was in Nottingham and I didn't have any friends because I was the new new kid in town, basically. Um, Also, um, I was trying to grasp the language. Uh, although I went to international school there, the accents were quite different. Uh, I still have a bit of accent, as you can hear from my tone. And everything just seemed so foreign to me uh, because I hadn't been to England uh, before that. Uh, so so I was sort of quite lonely in the afternoons after my school. Um, and one day I went into a Waterstones in, in the city centre of Nottingham just to see w- what this is, what, the, what a bookshop looks like. And that was quite a quite a bomb that exploded in my head because I hadn't seen any bookshop like this in my in my life. Because where I grew up in Dhaka, we had lots of bookstores, but it wasn't as colorful as the bookstores we have in England. So I was walking around feeling quite daunted and I was about to leave. I was thinking, I, I this is not my scene. <laughs> I feel out of place here. At that moment, I thought, why don't I just see if, um, because one name I had heard very well was Salman Rushdie. Uh, because of the fatwa, not because of his literary work. I thought uh, because his books uh, were banned, or rather Satan Versus is banned in many countries. So I thought, and in Bangladesh, you do find copies, but you don't see it being sold openly. So I was curious to see if the Satanic Versus is on the shelves. So I walked over and I found R. Rushdie. I found his name, um, sort of his surname on the, on, the, on the shelf. And I found the book. I picked it up. I browsed for a bit. I put it back. And then I was thinking, okay, that was a little experiment. Um, is there anybody else I could find with a surname that might that I might be able to relate to? And and 
I was sort of going up the shelves, I found Qureshi and I was thinking, okay, Qureshi sounds, a, sounds like a subcontinental name, definitely. And who, who is this guy? Hanif definitely is a very subcontinental name. And I looked at the several books he had under his name, uh, picked up Buddha Suburbia, mainly because of the name. The, the title of the book just intrigued me, it just seemed very funny. And then the first line of the book just caught my attention. Uh, and then I sort of opened halfway through the book just to see w w what it's like. And I think there was some extracts which were very funny. And I thought, this, this looks like an interesting book. And, I, and I, I looked at the price. I thought, okay, I can afford this. This is a paperback. It was, I think it was $8.99 or something like that. Um, so I bought it. And I thought, okay, if I can't read it, at least I'll have it as a, as a little possession. Um, and, and I left. And I went home. I uh, started reading it. And I found it very difficult reading it because um, although there were lots of funny bits which kept me going, but I also realized my vocabulary was very poor. So I took a pencil um, and a little dictionary that I had. I was marking the words I didn't understand. And I would just look up the dictionary and actually write with a pencil a little annotation next to the paragraph where the difficult words were. And through this process, I realized halfway through the book, my vocabulary just automatically improved, my reading, my concentration, everything just got better. So I was just, effectively, I was going home, looking forward to reading. And that, that was fascinating for me, uh, that a book could have that pull. And I was almost looking forward to finishing it and maybe looking at some of his other works. Uh, so that, that's how it all started, effectively. And I feel that was a great introduction to modern fiction for me. So did, did that then really set you off with reading other books? It did, because, you know, before that, before reading The Buddha Suburbia, books for me were where you had very uh, sort of strong language, or rather almost like uh, where you, the, the reader is almost put into submission. Whereas reading Buddha Suburbia, I felt as if I'm talking to a friend, or rather a friend is talking to me. He was leveling with me. He's saying, look, man, we're having a good time. This is what's happening. There's parties in London, there's music, there's a lot of rock and roll and all of that politics coming in. So I felt, wow, I'm learning a lot about England. I'm learning a lot about the immigrant experience, but also I'm learning as though he's not talking down, as though he's as a friend. And the, the main character who's narrating, Karim Amer, he's hilarious. So, and and he, even though he was, he, was, he was an immigrant, he was full of confidence and he wanted to move to London. He was from the suburbs uh, when you read the book or if you have read the book, he wants to move to London, he wants to do, it, to do well. And I, I think I could relate to a few things with that. And I thought, if this is what book reading is, and I wasn't exposed to this, I was exposed to rather kind of Shakespearean books. So this was different. So I thought I could look up who else is he inspired by. or So I, I went on to read some of his other books. And then when that was done, I, I think I read all of what I had, what I was available at the time, uh, the Black Album, um, the um, Love in a Blue Time, his collection of short stories, which were all fantastic. Then I was running out, then I was thinking, okay, one idea could be who inspired him to write like this. So I started, and internet was a very new thing then, and we didn't have Google, but we had, I think it was Alta Vista or Yahoo. <laughs> I, I, I Googled from my school library, looked up, and I saw an interview of him and where he, he talked about his inspiration. One of the names he mentioned in his books, uh, in his inspiration, uh, list of inspiration was uh, um, V.S. Naipaul. There were others, but I thought, okay, Naipaul also sounds very from the subcontinent. So that kind of, I, it kind of resonated with me. I thought, okay, who, who is this person? I had no idea who V.S. Naipaul was or what, what was it about. So, and then when I found out a, a little bit about V.S. Naipaul, I realized it was a big figure. It's just that I was again, very literate. Um, and the book to look up would be either House of Mr. Biswas or Bend in the River. So that 
brought me back to the bookshop. <laughs> <laughs> and, and brings us to your second choice, uh, which evidently you went for Bend in the River. <laughs> yes, and, and the reason is very uh, pedestrian, actually. I, I looked at the two, two books. I saw Household of Mr. Biswas is almost three times the size of Bend in the River. And I thought, that's, that's a mammoth <laughs> of a novel. I'm not going to be reading that size, uh, whereas Bend in the River seemed more manageable yeah. in terms of size. So just holding them in my hand, <laughs> if you understand, I was 17, so uh, rather, yeah, 17 and a half, something like that. And I was thinking, okay, this is, this is going to take me a long time to read, whereas this seems more manageable. So I, I picked up purely on that basis. I'm sure many books have been selected <laughs> on a similar basis, but, but you obviously really enjoyed that one. It really stuck with you. How did it have an impact on you? I think a bend in the river uh, for someone that of that age, seventeen, eighteen. You know, it's 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 quite a difficult book, I would say, because I had to revisit it um, in the recent times, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, I didn't fully understand or fully appreciate the depth of the book. Um, one of the beautiful things about Naipaul is he doesn't use any difficult words or a difficult language. His whole basis of writing was you should be able to explain very complex ideas using very simple language. And if you can do that, you're writing well. And he was always against long sentences or difficult words. He just thought that's showing off. That's not telling a story. You should be telling a story to the reader. So that part was easy. What was hard was the, the, the messages that were hidden and sort of multiple messages. But I think even at 17, because I, I grew up in Bangladesh where um, I was very aware of the politics. Before that, I wasn't aware that, you know, the stories of the developing world could be in fiction. I thought those, that's only in nonfiction where you do reports and World Bank sends a uh, massive report and all that. I thought, okay, someone's talking about stories that we are used to. And I, I wasn't aware of that. I thought that side is not represented. But again, that was my ignorance. You, you said you revisited the book more recently and you were going to say why. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, well picked up. Um, so V.S. Naipaul, I got to know him as a person uh, before he died quite well, actually. Uh, and we had the great fortune of inviting him to the Dhaka Literary Festival in 2016, uh, where he opened the festival. And we had a, we had a, I think it was his last public interview, which I had the privilege of interviewing him on stage. And for that, I, I revisited most of his work and again, in preparation for the interview. Um, and because it was it was someone I had already known um, in person, it was interesting revisiting the book and understanding him a bit more, sort of seeing where he came from and then reading the book again. Um, because A Bend in the River is also very controversial in, in so many ways. A lot of people talk it uh, talk about it as a lot of critics uh, don't like it as, 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 as he almost um, apologizes for the colonizers. That's one view. Uh, but there's the other side who also says, no, he's actually showing the reality. And it's also a very bleak book. It doesn't have a happy ending. It doesn't have a sort of uh, hopeful or optimistic ending. But V.S. Naipaul was like that as a person. He was he was all about finding the truth. He wouldn't give you false hope. He would just say, this is what it is. You know, even if the book starts off like that, the world is what it is. And as a matter of fact, you know, he, he had that sort of very sense like about that, about everything uh, in life. He, he was just, just like that. And then the book really represented his sort of psyche and thinking. So I understood that more. He, he was a long-standing member of the London Library, actually, but I never had a, a chance to meet him. I think you met him quite a few times. Right, you? right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we became quite close towards the end. Um, he, he became very oddly because he, isn't, he wasn't known to be fond of people, but he became quite fond of me, which was a real, real joy for me. 
uh, and he would want to see me at least once a week. Um, and he would tell his wife, Lady Nadra, that why isn't he visiting me? So I'd go see him. Uh, but it was also interesting that he would see me for 15, 20 minutes and then he would actually ask me to leave now. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> so it's not like a long, drawn out conversation. He'd get bored of me and he'd say, okay, it's time you go. And I would go. <laughs> you knew your place. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. You mentioned the Literary Festival, but I'm just going to hold that over actually if I may because I think your your next choice on your list it, it might be worth discussing first in right. terms of your sort of your life story so right. you've you've come and you've you've done your A-levels you go to university in uh, in the UK um study economics uh what do you do next and I think that might tie into your your next book selection so I think one of the effects books have on people is uh, you start to dream of becoming a writer um, I actually started writing poetry uh, from age 13, but I never thought I'll write prose or anything like that. But as I got more into the world of books, I thought, I have a story to tell. I have several stories to tell. How can I become a writer? At university, I chose economics primarily because I wanted to, to pursue writing more seriously. And I thought if I choose literature, that might just put me off. Uh, so that was a very, I think, a very clever decision. So economics was useful in the sense that it kind of get me, got me into the city, uh, the city of London, where I got a job. And I think I was partly uh, motivated by the whole um, idea of being an investment banker because I didn't really know much about it. I just knew from the outside, which I think is the case for many people. It, it's a really closed world. Um, and all you know is bankers on a lot of money and you have a great lifestyle. So I thought, okay, if I can just get in there, that's like almost like a getting into a club. And I could use my evenings and weekends to write. Um, that would be a nice balance for me. Uh, so I joined a bank only to realize they make you work. They do pay you well, but they make you work so hard. Uh, you actually end up working almost um, 70 to 80 hours a week, uh, which means the weekends are literally about recovering. So when we joined the bank, our manager uh, gave us a couple of books to read. One of them was Lies Poker. And another one was Tony Robbins, Unlimited Power. It was about not having any mental barriers. You know, you can earn anything you want. You can achieve anything you want. That kind of uh, philosophy. I think that still goes on in the city, that if you push yourself, you can achieve anything, which is okay to a certain extent. But I think, you know, it can also lead to excess. Um, and then um, one of the uh, associates from our New York office came down one one day and saw a couple of those books on my desk. And he said, is, is this what you're reading? I said, well we've been asked to read them. Uh, and he said, well, I'll add one more to your list. Uh, money, Martin Amis. So I'd already read Martin Amis before. I'd read um, the Rachel Papers, which I found hilarious. And it's still one of my favorite books. And I thought, yeah, of course I know Martin Amis. Kingsley Amis' son and great, great uh, critic. I used to love his um, nonfiction as well. So I picked up money. Um, and, and he also mentioned that people often say uh, Martin Amis' best book is London Fields. Some will defer, some will say money, but he said, you're, you're in this world, you should go for money first before London Fields. So I went and picked up money, I started reading it, and then it was, it was almost like a shock, uh, because I realized that the main character, John Self, it, it, I wasn't like that, I must admit, I must make clear, but a lot <laughs> of people around me were just like that. Uh, it's a different in industry there, he's trying to make a film in the book, whereas... Uh, but but the excesses, I think the excess, Martin Amis gets it very, very correctly. It kind of links because these people are earning a lot of money to afford this kind of uh, lifestyle. And they're the same people who would go to a 
a nightclub and spend a lot of money on absolute nonsense or go to a, a strip club. And I realized, actually, this is not what I want. And th these are warning signs for me just to get out. Even though I was aware, it wasn't like the, the book made me aware. It just sort of made me double aware. It's like it kind of gave me another perspective that this is what happens. And you never find happiness if you're just going to be in pursuit of money. What was it you decided that you did want to do with your time when you decided you wanted to get out of the city, feed the soul a bit more than the wallet? What was the, what was the thing that uh, you decided to do? So I, I tried to get into the sort of non-profit sector. I, I tried my luck with Amnesty International. I made a, quite, quite a few applications here and there. But I found for the first time I realized how difficult it is to change tracks. Uh, so I actually set off uh, on this sort of little traveling um, phase of my life where I went to Southeast Asia. So I'm, I'm from South Asia, from Bangladesh, but I hadn't seen most of or any of Southeast Asia. So I'm talking Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore. So I made a route uh, that I would go and see. And um, I, I found a friend in, in Malaysia where he convinced me to move to Malaysia and start this trading company. And I thought, okay, I always wanted to work for myself. This could be a nice introduction to it. Um, except the product we were going to trade in, I had no knowledge of. So that's something I learned that if you want to do business in something, you have to really know that product and not just the product, the market inside out. So it could be just maybe you're selling buttons, but you have to know everything about buttons, the history, the where it's going, where it's produced. If it's from China, who are the best producers, who can give you the best margin with the freight? You have to know all of that. I went into commodities trading in, in, in KL without any knowledge of the, the, the products that I was going to trade in or the market. Um, I ran out of money very quickly. Uh, almost in a year's time, I had no money in Malaysia. So I, I had no option but to move back to my old bedroom in Bangladesh, my parents' house. They were delighted. I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> they were thinking, yes, come back and yeah, we can do something here. And I wasn't very keen. Uh, but at the time, at the time it, it felt like a complete failure. I just felt, wow, I've gone 360 and have done nothing. I have nothing to show for, nothing in my savings account, no properties, no assets, no books. Because that was the other thing I had in my mind. I thought by the time... I'm 25, I write my first novel because I read a lot of these novelists who became great writers had produced, by the time they were 30, had produced five or six books. And I thought, okay, I should be doing the same. I hadn't written anything. So I, I, I was very, very down and out at the time. At the same time, I, I, did, I sort of looked around the region, what else was going on. One thing I realized was there was a lot of literary festivals happening in India. Uh, even Nepal, which is a considerably smaller country, they also had a literary festival going on. So that really made me think, and I was thinking, how come Bangladesh and Dhaka do not have a literary festival? We have, uh, we've have always had that from from for thirty years plus uh, a book fair. Uh, it's called the Ekushe Book Fair, which is um, the sort of in February. It was a massive book fair of, but mainly Bengali books. So I was thinking, what could we do to make it more international? So we will have the Bangladeshi authors, but we'll also bring in authors from around the world to make it more interesting and exciting and have a bit more cross-cultural dialogue. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was, um, how can we get younger people to read more and get them excited? So, so that's why literary festivals work very well. You, you have writers who are on stage. We, we almost present them as rock stars and people want to hear what they have to say. And some of them are very charming. 
And after hearing someone's session, people often go and buy those books, get them signed, take a selfie. You know, all of this culture is part of the literary festival now. So this was 2011 when I started talking to a few friends about this uh, idea that we should have a literary festival. I had been to Hay Festival in the UK, so I knew how it worked or the, the concept of it. Um, and then I found uh, two friends who were already working on it. So it was just a coincidence that I was also thinking and they were already working. And uh, we partnered with Hay Festival in 2011, started a pilot program. It was just a one-day program where we had four authors from the UK uh, and then about 15 from Bangladesh, so 20 people, 20 authors. A uh, very small program, just one day. Uh, we had about 1,000 people, but we also realized um, uh, we hosted it in at the British Council of Dhaka, who had a small lawn at the back of their building. It was too small for the crowd. We didn't expect, we didn't anticipate the, um, the excitement or the um, enthusiasm for attending the festival. And... Uh, we said, okay, we'll go. We'll make it bigger. So we made it three times bigger. So we, we moved to a different location where we now hold the festival in Bangla Academy, um, which is massive, and uh, we expanded to three days. And since then, we've had. I mean, last year, I'll just give you last year's figures. We've had thirty thousand people in attendance, uh, over seventy writers from around the world, from twenty-four different countries attending. So it's truly big. We have over hundred sessions, uh, six stages, all going on. It's, that is free. It's open to all, so which is why a lot it's, of young people come. So. It's fantastic. Well, let's uh, go back to the book list, and I think this ties in with the literary festival because it's it's uh, Orlando by Virginia Woolf, but the the connection is one that people might not immediately realise between <laughs> between this book and and Dhaka. Did you want to just explain that link? Sure. So one of the great things about running a literary festival is you you get to meet a lot of writers. And then as you expand the festival to more arts-based um, arrangement, you reach out to artists from different uh, specialty. Um, and I had met Tilda Swinton already, um, and purely by chance in, in a hotel in Paris. And I had approached her that she should come to the festival, and she was very keen from the beginning. Uh, and then I, we worked out that she couldn't come that year, but maybe the following year she could come. And then getting her to Dhaka was a big deal for us, and we were very excited to have her. Um, and I was also given the uh, task of interviewing her on stage. And I was looking at her work, uh, and she was always more interested in the literature side rather than the film side. Uh, and she told me that she always wanted to be a writer. Uh, she also said that she's in the wrong profession. She should have been a writer. So I, I always joke that for someone in the wrong profession, you've done very well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so we, 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 we started off talking about um, Orlando in one of our conversations. And I realized that I hadn't read the book. I had read To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, but I hadn't read this one. So I thought it's, it's, it'd be prudent of me before the interview <laughs> takes place, I, I should read this. I had seen the film, which uh, she stars in, a uh, wonderful film uh, by, um, directed by Sally Potter. Uh, so I read it, and I realized that what an impact it had on me uh, reading it, mainly because uh, this is quite a different book from her other books. I mean, I think it was her fourth novel, but I think he, she really um, sort of broke a few rules writing this book. It's quite unlike any fiction you would pick up. And then the changes, um, it, it's, it's about freedom, it's about liberty, it's about doing what you really want to do. It kind of tied in with my sort of phase of life, I think, sort of doing exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And about um, equality, about rights, about women's rights, all of those things 
presented in a very delicate way. So it's not preaching. I think that that getting that through to the reader without ever coming across as preaching, I think that's masterful. And her writing style, it's it's I mean, I think she's 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 one of the truly one of the great writers of the last few centuries, I would say. Um, is just marvelous. I think all of those things made an impact. I think also the I think that's also I have to mention this that where you are at at your life, you know, what phase of your life and what books you're picking up will, will have a connection as in um it'll affect your sort of appreciation of the book. So for example, if you if you're very if you're very upset about something and you pick up I don't know, a depressing book, <laughs> you won't you won't appreciate it at all. Well, I'm glad you chose um, Orlando because it gives me a chance to get some things out from mm-hmm. uh, from the, the the London Library uh, archives um, and and shelves. Uh, Going to pass you now our um, the London Library's first edition of How Orlando oh, by beautiful. Virginia Woolf, and it's so well kept. 1928, it was um, uh, written. Now, Virginia Woolf joined herself in 1904, so her connection with the library uh, initially was through her father, right. Leslie Stephen. So he, he was actually president of the library. I see. And when he died um, in 1904, uh, within two weeks, Virginia had um, joined the library as a life member. She was 22 years old right. and uh, would no longer have the benefits of the library through her father being president. So she knew she wanted to join in and use it in her own right. So I'm going to um, just slide over to you there. Uh-huh. Virginia, Virginia Stephen, as she was then, Virginia Stephen. Virginia Stephen. Is, is there a record to know if she came into the library? Oh, absolutely. No, she came, yes, she, she came in plenty of times. And also um, her husband came and she, she, um, Leonard, she writes in one of her diaries that, um, that, that Leonard and Desmond have been in the London library looking up the F word in the dictionary of slang <laughs> and how disappointed that they were to find um, that at the page bearing the F word, there were lots of grubby thumbprints uh, <laughs> where other members of the library had been doing the same thing before them. Uh, which and is, which is and, and it was in this very building, isn't it? This is the same building we were oh, yes, talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in, and and I, I mentioned Vita Sackville West. Yes. Um, of Huge course. influence on her. Absolutely. And uh, really was Orlando. Yes. In the book Orlando. Yeah. Uh, this is her joining form. Ah, amazing. Um, a bit later on this one, 1936. So, so actually after Orlando's written. Um, and Vita you have a um, right author in the occupation. Yes, Vita was, a, was an author um, by then. And I love uh, the address, Sissinghurst Castle. And that's it. <laughs> Isn't that great when you're asked for your address, address. and you're able to put a castle? <laughs> I think that's fantastic. There's so much history in this library. Um, I mean, for an aspiring writer or someone who just loves books or literature, this is this is the place and sort of quietly tucked away in, in this sort of centre of London. But so yes. much history, so much um, stories. Absolutely. How long have you been a member for, Asam? I think I've been a member for about three years now. What led you to the library in the first place? I think I was looking for a place to write, uh, and I had I had heard about the London Library through my writer friends who'd been to the festival, and all of them said, uh, if you want to write, you you either go to the British Library, but it's uh, very difficult to find space there. If you can afford it, go to the London Library. And I was thinking, well, it must be very expensive then. And I said, I said where is London Library? They said, St. James Square. I said, okay, it must be. Because in my head, I was thinking this would be like one of the clubs around here. Of course. And I was thinking it must be extortionate to become a member, and I... Maybe, maybe not, not a good idea. 
And then I came to learn more about Lan Library, and, and, and um, it was Marcel Theroux, Paul Theroux's son, who said to me that, uh, let's meet for a coffee. I'm going to London Library to drop off a book, and then we'll meet for a coffee around the corner. So are you in Green Park? And I said, oh. Um, and I was also under the impression that you had to be introduced, just like the traditional clubs in, the, right, in London, right. as in a, a, a proposer and a seconder. Yes, no, not anymore. So, so, so and I was thinking, okay, at least I, at least now I know Marcel is a member, and I know another person is a member. So maybe I can ask them to make me a member in this. Uh, and I asked him, and he said, no, it's not that expensive actually. Um, you can also you can pay by direct debit monthly, so you get your money's worth. You can selection journals magazines i was thinking okay this is uh worth looking into so that's how i became a member but i have to also say that just my, how my life is and you'd know a bit about it um i rarely come into the library but i love the idea that i'm a member and i'm a part of the club effectively and i'm always saying to my friends who are looking for a place to either borrow books or find a little bit of L london history i said this is essential if, you, if you're moving to london or if you're living in london uh, it doesn't cost very much. And if you're a young person, you think you have a discount there. This is, it should be integral to your, uh, to your life. And I think I'm a life member now, as in I'll be committed to life. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's, that's a great pleasure to have you, Asan. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Let's draw to a close with the final book on your list, Reunion by Fred Ullman. Tell us about this book and why you've chosen it. So um, I think it was The Guardian, or perhaps it's not The Guardian, the FT, um, who always do this beautiful list in the summer and maybe in the winter as well, where they ask writers and other um, notable names to name their favorite books from the season. And Ian McEwan had chosen Reunion as his sort of the book, and he recommended it very strongly. He said it was a must read. And Ian McEwan is someone I, I look up to like many people do. Um, and I thought, okay, that's an interesting recommendation. I'd never heard of the author's name. So that was the thing that intrigued me. So I looked up, I went to Waterstones, I found it. Um, and again, I mean, I thought, okay, this is a novella, so it'd be easy, it'd be quick to read. Um, I must add that, you know, time constraints um, means less time to read, but I'm very aware of that. I'm trying to correct that as well. Uh, so those were, the kind of, those were the initial reasons to pick up the book. But as you start reading it, and those who have read it will know, from page one, from the first paragraph, you're hooked you're very hooked because the narrator is so good. And I think Fred Ullman does so well in terms of using uh, language in such, with such precision. Uh, not one line uh, is too many. It's just perfect, perfect use of language. Um, I think some, I think, I don't know if, if V.S. Naipaul ever read it, but this is the kind of book he would really approve. Right. Very good use of language. Um, and and it talks about friendship, which I, I begin we began to think more about. I mean, I've always been very fond of my friends because I've been away from my family from the age of 16. So my friends have become my family. And this is a very unlikely friendship in the book. I wouldn't tell too much about it mm. because for there are listeners who haven't read it. And it's a beautiful story of friendship. Um, and it, it's a celebration of friendship and how two people from two different backgrounds can become best of friends and, and the legacy they can leave behind. It's, it's wonderful. It is. It's a very beautiful book. I do recommend it as well. Thank you ever so much for coming in and speaking to us, Hassan. No, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. And to find out more about the London Library, please visit our website at londonlibrary.co.uk. Please check the links in the show notes and rate us and subscribe. <laughs>